Uh, as you've been hearing, we are in the midst of uh, thinking and praying as a church about some facility renovation projects around here. And any church that just keeps existing eventually has to engage in a discussion about their facilities. Whether uh, that's a church that hasn't talked about it for five years or whether they go a whole 50 years without talking about it again or whether we're talking about a church that um, is looking to move from one rented facility to another rented facility like our church plant Christ Church did not that long ago or whether a church is considering renovation or expansion or even moving locations I'll say it again, any church that just keeps existing eventually will have to engage in a fresh discussion about their facilities. Uh, Someone put it to me like that recently, and I thought it was very helpful. It reminded me this is not that weird, even if it feels weird. It's not bad, even if it feels a little odd. Well, let me pray, and then we'll continue our discussion. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we turn our attention specifically to gaze upon it this morning, we ask for your help. We pray for clarity. We pray for ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray for hearts that are open and attuned to your word and to your ways. Would you grow us? Would you shape us? Would you save those here who haven't yet come to know Jesus We pray, Lord, you would use this time for your glory and for our good in the gospel of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. While this discussion began among our elders uh, actually over two years ago, and at first it was a, a very practical discussion about some limitations and some opportunities with our present facilities. But once we had some agreement on the projects in view, we then turned to biblical passages on on money, on stewardship, on giving and generosity. Because we knew that if we were ever to ask the whole church to get behind this financially, then we would have to be behind it financially ourselves, and we needed to start with ourselves. And so we started with personal questions, Uh, you know, each of us asking ourselves, so how am I doing? As I look at these passages, how have I been doing? How have I been doing in leading my family with generosity, with giving? And then we asked broader questions. How is Desert Springs on the whole doing with generosity, with giving, with stewardship? And then we asked the, the mixed question, personal and corporate, how are we as elders in the church, as teachers of the church, how are we doing in leading the church in this area? And we concluded a few things. We concluded that um, probably each of us, to a man, has, um, has sensed a measure of coasting in regards to being thoughtful about our handling of money. It had just been a while for some of us since we had last looked at those classic passages on money, and there are many in the Bible. 
We also concluded that on the whole, Desert Springs Church is and has been a generous church. You folks give. We're thankful for that. We also concluded that we, your elders, on the one hand, haven't completely failed in this area. I mean, when it comes up in a passage, we're not going to like jump the passage or something and move on to the next one. And we've occasionally offered classes on, you know, the handling of money and stewardship and those sorts of things. But we also concluded that we, your shepherds, haven't given enough thought to leading the church in in this area of generosity and giving. What, what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 8, the grace of giving. I think it's easy for all of us to be somewhat complacent with where we are, somewhat coasting in what we have done, especially in a church where there are offering boxes in the back instead of the passing of a plate, which we'll continue to do. We'll have offering boxes in the back when we won't pass a plate. But it's especially hard for us to to be thoughtful about our giving when we can give in that way, and, and even more when we can give online or set up an automatic withdrawal. And it's easy for us as your shepherds to assume and perhaps even at times to presume upon your generosity as you just give and we just don't say anything about it. So one thing we think we don't do very well as a church is talking about the heartbeat behind giving, the the motivation for it, the, the, the orientation of it, the reasons for it. So today I want to lead us in a classic text on giving, 2 Corinthians 8. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. Actually, the classic text is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two whole chapters. And so we'll take this week and next week to look at those chapters. Let me read 2 Corinthians 8 for us. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, your, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it 
may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of, your, of our boasting about you to these men. Well, there's a backstory to this chapter, as you can probably tell. Paul, at this point, has been raising money among Greek-speaking Gentile churches in the Roman world, raising money for suffering Christians who were Jewish in Jerusalem. In these days, there was a severe famine in and around Jerusalem, and Christians there were not only facing the famine that everyone else was facing, but they had, they had faced decades of being persecuted for being followers of Christ. They had it bad. And Paul was concerned. And he wanted churches to join with him in their concern and show that concern with that proverbial wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, now broken down in Christ, with now there being one new man, Jew and Gentile, well, it was important for unity in the broader church, for the Gentile churches to care for and send relief to suffering Jewish Christians. It was a big deal, this collection. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to Corinth, he wrote about this collection. In chapter 16, he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that is when you meet together, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
And then sometime after writing 2 Corinthians, when he wrote to the Romans, he's referring to the collection again. He says in Romans 15, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia, that's Corinth. Have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So in between the writing of 1 Corinthians and Romans, somewhere in there, Paul wrote our letter, 2 Corinthians and apparently at that time, the Corinthians' zeal for this project had stalled. Well, their zeal for the apostle Paul had stalled. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians to try to reignite their zeal for him and reignite their zeal for this project. And Paul wants to reignite not just their, not just their zeal for the project, but for kingdom giving in general. He really lays out here a whole theology of generosity and Christian money handling. He lays out the motives, the reason, the, the attitude, the approach, the orientation. And by the way, that's why 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 <coughs> are useful to us anytime we're talking about kingdom giving in general. That is, giving to the purposes of Christ, whether it's a famine, or it's a local church budget, or it's a facility project. Kingdom giving of any kind is relevant here. Because we see Paul spends very little time actually talking about those specific needs in Jerusalem. They already know about those needs, and it's already assumed here. Instead, he gets to the heart behind it all. He's laying out the basis for any and all giving to Christ's purposes. So we're not off base looking to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in a season like this in the life of our church. And we wouldn't be off base in looking up and reading again 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 Anytime we write another check to a local church or, or anytime we're sort of reevaluating as an individual or a family, uh, what are we going to give in the next year in light of this pay bump that we got? And the projects may differ between the Corinthians and Desert Springs, but the principles of kingdom giving remain the same. We saw that some weeks back as we leaned upon Exodus 35 and 36 and their celebration of the contributions that were given towards the construction of the tabernacle. Of course, we're not building a tabernacle, and we never will. But we can lean upon and learn from their contributions and from their celebration of giving in Exodus 35 like we will today in 2 Corinthians 8. So now we'll just dig in. We'll work through the text under four headings. 
By the way, let me clarify something. What we've been doing in these last few weeks in this series we've called Next is not topical preaching. Uh, This is actually a thematic series, and each week we're going to a primary passage, and we're looking to expound on that passage. We're looking to exposit that passage. You know, if you've been around here for any time at all, that we normally are preaching through books of the Bible. And that is the, the best way, and the primary way, I would say, to do expositional preaching. But, it, but it's not the only way. Uh, so it's not that unheard of for us to occasionally take a, a theme, and then over several weeks, look at several passages, one per week, which is very different, by the way, than true topical preaching, which would be, let's take a topic, let's put 15, 20 verses in a blender, and we'll just pull them out one by one, really ignore context or structure in the literary level. Now, that's topical preaching. It's not what we've been doing, and it's not what we do, say, every year around Christmas time when we have another theme, and we're looking at a few various passages one week at a time. All right, standing down off my soapbox now. Let's get after this exposition then. There's first the example of the Macedonians. The example of the Macedonians is what we see in verses 1 to 8. The churches of Macedonia were most likely Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And not unlike the Christians in Jerusalem, the Macedonian Christians had their own troubles. Poverty, persecution. As such, Paul didn't even invite those Christians in Macedonia to participate in this project of giving to the Jerusalem saints. But the Macedonians heard about it and begged to get involved. Verse 4, they begged us earnestly. Not because they had a surplus. Not because they had, you know, this surprise money. What do we do with this? I don't know. I heard about this Jerusalem thing. Maybe we should give to that. No, verse 2 tells us they were in extreme poverty, much affliction, a severe test of affliction. And yet, despite those circumstances, verse 2 tells us they had an abundance of joy. Abundance of joy, not in the circumstances, but despite the circumstances. An abundance of joy in the Christian life, yes, but also specifically towards this project. They begged us earnestly for the favor of getting involved. And they gave, verse 3 says, according to their means and even beyond their means. Now, that doesn't mean that they, you know, used credit cards and went into debt to give to the Jerusalem project. But it does mean that they gave beyond what was reasonable. They gave beyond what, they gave in a way that would infringe upon, you know, their normal provision, their daily needs. They gave in a way that if you were a, college student and you called home and told dad 
Here's what I'm going to give. Dad would say, eh, maybe just back that off a little bit. That's really aggressive. I don't know if it's completely wise. Well, they kind of gave in that sort of really zealous way, like so many college students at least set out to do. And they gave in a way where they saw it as partnership. Koinonia. That's the word behind taking part in verse 4. They wanted to take part. They wanted to have partnership in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 5 tells us that first and foremost, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to this project. They understood giving to the Lord's people is nothing if they haven't first given of themselves to the Lord, haven't consecrated themselves to the Lord. And what they gave back in verse 1, in a word, is called grace. Grace. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among those churches. Ten times in these two chapters, that word Usually translated grace, not always in our English Bibles, but the same Greek word is used ten times in these two chapters. Now throughout those chapters, Paul actually chooses to not use typical words for money. You don't see in English money. You don't see coins mentioned here. You don't see cash mentioned here. Paul doesn't talk about savings even Instead, he spiritualizes all the words. In a good way, he spiritualizes the words for this project. He calls it service, like what deacons do, ministry. In chapter 8, verse 10, he calls it good work. Chapter 9, verse 5, he calls the giving blessing. But his favorite word, as I said, is this word grace. It's an act of grace, he says in verse 6, in verse 7, and then again in verse 19. An act of grace. Which means then that this giving flows out of God's grace. Just think of the parallels. Grace is a gift. Grace is free. Grace costs the giver but not the recipient. And God's grace to us isn't just forgiveness, but also employment. He doesn't just set us free, he puts us to work. And so his grace is to flow through Christians. We're to be a conduit of God's grace to others. And so Paul is holding up the Macedonians as an example for the Corinthians to take note of and to follow. He says in verse 7, You Corinthians excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, earnestness. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Have you thought of that before, giving as something to excel in? Something that you can deliberately try to excel in? I mean, we try to excel in speech. Don't say bad words, say good words, right? 
We try to excel in faith, trust the Lord, don't doubt, don't complain. Excel in this as well, in your giving. Verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, Paul here was not pitting one group of Christians against another group of Christians to see who would care more and hence who would give more. Which one? No. And neither was he guilting the Corinthians into their giving. I say it not as a command. Just like he would say of the Macedonians in verse 4, they gave of their own accord. He wasn't requiring or demanding their gift. Neither was he pulling at the heartstrings of the Corinthians by, by pitying the Macedonians in their extreme poverty. You know, which would be like the equivalent of those commercials with the unadopted, sickly-looking dogs with Sarah McLaughlin's song playing in the background. Or when I was a kid, it was Sally Fields and giving food to the Ethiopians. Now, that's moving. It may have financial effects, but Paul doesn't do it here. Paul was giving the Corinthians this admirable example, this imitable example and one which we today would do well to imitate and be motivated by. The Macedonians' giving flowed out of God's grace. It was not out of their abundance, but it was sacrificial. It was with joy. It was with first consecrating themselves to the Lord. And it was out of love for others. And secondly, we move to the example of Christ, found in verse 9. If the example of the Macedonians is powerful, then how about this, verse 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Remember, the financial gift was called grace, an act of grace. Well, now verse 9 makes the connection explicit between giving and grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he unpacks that grace with financial metaphors. He says, Christ, though he was rich... That's referring to his pre-incarnation glory in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Spirit in eternity's past. It's what Paul refers to in Philippians 2 as Christ being in the form of God and not thinking equality with God was something to grasp for or reach for. No, Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The poverty there isn't literal poverty, though Jesus probably was poor. But this is referring to his incarnation, his humanity, him taking on death in death upon the cross. Again, Philippians 2. Remember, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. He became obedient. To death, even death on a cross. 
For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. No, not financially rich. Even better, spiritually rich, adopted, full inheritors of God's riches and kingdom. So here we have in just a verse, we've got a gospel nugget. Here we have in this verse 9, we've got substitution described for us in these beautiful financial terms. And so I ask you, do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know it? Because Paul could tell the Corinthians, you know it. You know how he was rich, but then took on spiritual poverty for us that we might have his spiritual eternal riches. You know it. Do you know it? Do you know it to be true for you? You come to put your faith in it. Could someone say to you, you know the grace of Jesus. You know what it's like. You know what he did. You know what it means for you. If you're not a Christian, you maybe came here with someone today. Maybe you just afterwards talk with them about this some more. Just ask them, how do I know? How do I know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you didn't come with someone today, maybe come see me or someone else afterwards up front. And we'd just love to chat with you some more about that. We'd love to answer any questions that you might have about it. Now you must understand, if you're not yet a Christian... Here this morning, we're talking about giving, yes. And it must be clear to you. It must be made clear that we give to the church, to each other, not because we need to get from God. We don't give to get. We give only because we've been given so much. And you must understand as well that before Christ can ever be Our example, he must first be our substitute. He must first be a sacrifice for us. He must first be our poverty, and we must then receive his riches. And then, well, then his death becomes something more than just um, our forgiveness. It also does become an example, a model. He sacrificed so much. He gave so much. He gave it all. And so we as Christians look at verse 9 and we, we ask ourselves, does the gospel actually motivate my giving? When I click that box on a website and decide some of my money is going to go there to them for that, and I fill out that check and put my name on an envelope and drop it in an offering box on my way out? Is it actually driven by, influenced by, the fact that Jesus died for me? When's the last time you thought about giving because Christ gave? And does our generosity to God's kingdom Does it reflect this kind of gospel, this kind of cost? Of course, no, it never will. Christ's payment is the ultimate, of course. 
but it should be shaped by his payment, his sacrifice, his gift. He's the example. Thirdly, then, there's the invitation to the Corinthians. In the heart of our passage, 10 to 15 here, Paul invites the Corinthians, as he's already done, verses 6 to 8 have already hinted at the Corinthians' need to renew their plans to get in on this project. And Paul's already implied several different motivations for them to do so. Like in verse 7, you excel in everything, excel in this. Or or verse 8, this proves your love. This proves your love for God and love for others. And then with the double example of the Macedonians and Christ laid down by verse 9, then by verse 10, Paul can in earnest invite the Corinthians to jump back in on this project. And here he lays down more reasons and more motivation. He says in verse 10, this benefits you. And he doesn't expound on that. He doesn't say how it benefits them. Perhaps he's thinking of the purifying and freeing power of holding loose our money and possessions like the Danners referred to in their testimony. It's what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which we often get that confused and in the wrong order. We think it means that our checkbooks are sort of thermometers for our hearts. And that's true. But Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hearts actually follow treasures, not just indicate hearts. Perhaps Paul has in mind the eternal rewards. Uh, Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven. You think of that exchange had between Peter and Jesus in Mark 10. Uh, Peter says, we've left everything for you. Is that good enough? And Jesus says, oh, Peter, uh, no one who's left anything for me will not get back a hundredfold in the age to come. You've given nothing compared to what you'll get. Well, Paul may have any or all of this in mind when he says this benefits you. It's like what he says in Philippians 4 after the Philippian church had so faithfully supported Paul. He says, verse 17, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And I can honestly say as a pastor, and I think this represents our elders as well, we can talk about money at a time like this and not seek the gift. The Lord Jesus will take care of his church. He will provide for this church in the way he sees fit. We're not worried about that in the least. We can look to 2 Corinthians 8 this morning, not in an attempt to reel out of your wallet more money, but actually for your spiritual good. Just like kids don't believe it when parents say, this spanking's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, but eventually you become a parent and you find out that's kind of true sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's true. (laughs) So you may hear a pastor say, it's not that we're interested in your gift, and think, yeah, right. 
But honestly, it's not that we seek the gift, we seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So finish what you started is essentially Paul's message in verse 10 and 11. Follow through on what you've said. Don't let the job go undone. And even more, don't let the desire for this job, this task, don't let that fade. He says in verse 11 in the second half, give out of what you have. Or verse 12, a person's to give according to what a person has. No one expects you to give what you don't have. But Paul does expect, apparently, each person, each family to figure out what they have. That's not easy. That takes some work sometimes. Of course, there's a freeness to this. Figure out what you have and what you can give. The Old Testament tithe system, which was a mix of religious and civil um, taxes, essentially, or obligations... Those totaled 23 and a third percent in Old Covenant days. Now that Old Testament tithe system apparently doesn't carry over to the New Testament. There's, there's really no mention of it, and certainly not here. Paul's teaching instead borrows from that free will offering that well, we saw it with the giving for the tabernacle in Exodus 35. The same could be found when they take up money for the building of the temple later on. Remember Exodus 35. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then afterwards, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, brought the Lord's contribution. Now the freeness of giving shouldn't breed stinginess. It shouldn't breed greed. Considering what we have is hard work. Even though there's no percent put on what is sacrificial, even though there's no exact amount required of you, Freeness is not the only principle in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Sacrifice is another. Earnestness is one. Eagerness, excelling, and taking an honest look at what you have. Give out of what you have. So consider what you have. Consider what you can give up or what you can free up. Now, I'm tempted at this point to give you some examples. But I have chosen not to give you any examples. Let me give you an example and show you why it's not good to give you an example. <laughs> Suppose right here I said, some of you might want to consider canceling Netflix. And then, uh-oh, so-and-so still has Netflix? They don't really care. Didn't you hear Pastor Ryan use that example? That's a perfect example. That's something optional. You enjoy your Netflix, okay? I've got Netflix. <laughs> You've got to be careful here. On the one hand, concrete examples might be helpful for us to sort of begin to brainstorm as we individually and or as a family 
begin to think through what we have and what we can, what we can give. It means looking at your budget or starting to budget if you've never done that. It means acknowledging that some areas of life, some eras of life rather, are, are more expensive than others. Kids in college, weddings around the corner, retirement, and fixed income. I don't even know what that means. My income's fixed. But everyone talks about when you retire, it's really hard. You have fixed income. Okay, I guess it's hard. I'll find out someday. Well, maybe you're a college student. You say, I basically have zero income. Yes, and maybe I could point out there is that Starbucks thing you really, really like. And then I would say, sorry, I shouldn't have used an example because I will never judge you when I see a Starbucks cup in your hand. The point is simply, each of us has to figure out what do we have? What has the Lord given us? What can we put to his work? It's fair, according to verse 13 and 14. This is just fair. You see that? Paul says it's a matter of fairness that you would give to the Jerusalem Christians to supply their need. And you might think that that sounds like ecclesiastical socialism. But it's not. It's simply bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6.1. If you have a burden and I seek to bear some of your burden, I've taken off then some of your burden. There is a kind of balancing of the scales happening there. It's heading towards a balancing of the scales. It's headed towards more equity between us, not less equity between us. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't call Christians for full equity. He doesn't call churches to, to fully balance the scales. Like, you know, all of us just pile all of our possessions and finances together, and then however many members we have, we distribute it evenly. No, that would be ecclesiastical socialism, and it's not found in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible, it assumes that Christians have possessions and can give them. Everywhere in the Bible, it assumes that there are going to be those with more and those with less, but it also assumes that those with more will, by and large, help those with less. Bearing one another's burdens. And all this is rooted in God's provision. So Paul quotes Exodus 16, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. So the fairness, the freeness, the following through, and how all this benefits you, all of that is, is now added to that grace-giving example of the Macedonians and of Jesus. And all of this is meant to stir, to stir the Corinthians' souls to give joyfully and sacrificially and worshipfully and willingly. You think of all the ways that the Apostle Paul could have sought to motivate the Corinthians to give he could have pointed out 
He could have picked at their wealth. What they have that is extravagant. If you were writing today, perhaps you would look up the latest stats on how bad Christian Americans are at giving. Could have used that. That's powerful. But instead, it's all so positive. It's so theological. It's so gospel-rooted. And fourthly, there's the integrity of the administration in the last paragraph, verses 16 to 24. Verses which deal with, get this, the management and the administration of these funds. Paul wants to assure the Corinthians and any other contributing church that there's accountability going on here. No one's skimming off the top here. Paul and his colleagues are above reproach in their handling of others' money. They're seeking to do it with integrity, being above board. And so he tells the Corinthians about three different messengers who will be handling this collection. One is Titus, whom they already know well. Another is an unnamed brother, verse 18, who it says is famous for preaching the gospel. Imagine being the unnamed brother who was famous at one time but didn't get your name in the Bible. He's fine with it now, but that's interesting. And then there's some other unnamed brother in verse 22 who's been tested and found earnest in many matters. So they're not only individually trustworthy and proven, but they're traveling together. There's accountability there. They've each been commissioned by their local churches. So there are these checks and balances in place. So verse 23, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and your boasting about you to these men. In other words, these men are trustworthy. So trust them kind of works both ways on the one hand Paul doesn't say I'm an apostle trust me the money will get to Jerusalem with no skimming off the top he doesn't say trust Titus because I said so no he puts multiple messengers in place trustworthy proven men but neither would the apostle Paul Abide by the Corinthians having any excessive suspicion or lack of trust. At some point, the Corinthians are going to have to trust these men and hand over no small amount of money. On the one hand, practical steps to ensure accountability and being above reproach is not petty. It's not irrelevant. It's not unspiritual. On the other hand, trusting trustworthy men to lead out is a good and noble thing. I'm a pastor at this church. I'm also a member. I'm thankful to be a member at a church where there are layers of checks and balances in place for financial accountability. 
I'm thankful to be in a church where there's a plurality of elders who lead on an even level, who together approve a yearly budget and decide where money goes. To have a compensation committee, you might not know this, there's a compensation committee in our church that decides um, the compensation of our, our staff. And no elder pastor who's on staff is on that committee. We have elders who are on that committee who are non-staff, but, but no staff elder is on the committee deciding on the compensation of other staff members. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that two signatures are needed on every check written by this church. I'm thankful that after the second service every Sunday, when the contributions in the offering boxes need to get emptied, there are always two people who are emptying those boxes and putting them in a safe after the service. I'm thankful for our counting team on Mondays. More than one person counts what is put into those boxes on a Sunday. Someone else entirely takes that money to the bank. On and on I could go. A dozen things I don't even know about. I'm thankful to be at a church where there are layers of checks and balances, and I'm also thankful to be at a church where there's a lot of trust in the leaders. I mean, we don't deserve that in some ways. You just are kind. You're generous. You're behind us. You say nice things to us most of the time. I'm thankful to be at a church where there's a lot of trust in our leadership. And that's part of why I feel that the lion's share of my kingdom generosity should go primarily to my local church. It's not just because of the trust and the trustworthiness, but it's also because of the institution of the local church and what that means in the kingdom of God. This collection, yes, went outside the Corinthian church to help other churches. But it went through a local church. All these churches were giving as local churches. The messengers were representatives of local churches. They were commissioned by their local churches. There's nothing wrong at all with giving to parachurch ministries to a friend going on a mission trip, to adopting a child in, in an impoverished country, to supporting another friend's church plant. But, but the local church, your local church, is, is central in your kingdom work. Just as the local church is central to God's kingdom in his grand purposes, so I think our generosity should have our local church as the centerpiece. Not the only thing, but the, the central thing, the primary thing that we're supporting for God's great purposes. Now you might be expecting, especially if you're looking at your watch, you might expect that at this point in the sermon, I'm now going to make a hard turn to talk about some part of building renovations 
or talk to you again about that commitment card that some of us will fill out and turn in in a couple of weeks. And you might expect that this is now the time in the sermon where I really turn the screws. And there's no need for that. There's absolutely no need for that. And I have bigger fish to fry than that. I only ask you this. Has the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ so infected you, so affected your heart that it has rattled your wallet, that it has lit a fire in your checking account? Has the grace of God in the supernatural joy that transcends circumstances and possessions and comforts has that moved in you in such a way that there is eagerness, that there is earnestness, that you desire to excel in this act of grace also? And if not, then I simply invite you today to get in on it. I simply invite you today I simply remind you today that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I simply invite you today to lean on the example of the Macedonians, to stand on the firm example and salvation that we have in Jesus and live a life of sacrifice and grace out of love for others with joy in God, committing ourselves to things that are not temporary or for ourselves, but are eternal. Let's pray for his help. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for your word, which cuts, it does. We're thankful for your word, Lord, which gives life, which comforts. So would your word do your work in our lives today for our good and for your grand purposes in this world? We simply commit it all to you. We simply acknowledge that it's yours. We simply, Lord, thank you for your gift to us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, though he was rich, he took on all poverty for us that we might have his riches. We thank you and pray in his name. Amen.